Hello, my name's Tom Overton, and you're listening to Suite 212, a show which puts the arts in a social, cultural, and political context. Today, we're turning the tables a little. Uh, I'm back out of broadcast retirement because your usual host, Juliet, has written a book called Variations, published by Influx Press and available from your local independent bookshop. I wanted to ask her some questions about it. Uh, if you've listened to Suite 212 a lot, as you should, you'll know her voice, but just to remind you of her various achievements before we get started, Juliet Jakes is a writer, filmmaker, academic, and broadcaster. Her short fiction, essays, and journalism have appeared in numerous publications, including Art Review, Freeze, Granter, New York Times, Sight and Sound, Time Out, and Wire, and her short films have been screened in galleries and festivals worldwide. As well as hosting the program you're listening to, she teaches at the Royal College of Art and elsewhere. Between 2010 and 2012, she wrote a Transgender Journey series for The Guardian. And in 2015, uh, Verso published Trans and Memoir, the book Juliet developed from the articles. In her 2020 book, Contemporary Feminist Life Writing, the academic Jennifer Cook grouped Trans and Memoir with Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts and Paul B. Preciado's Tester Junkie as works which, quote, abandon the tradition within earlier trans life writing as focusing on transition as the dramatic apex of the narrative and arguing for an expansion of the term trans. Where Cook thought Juliet's work was different, though, was in its gentleness and humour, the way it emphasises human experiences that befall all of us, trans or otherwise, the humanism that offers a different route. In this, there was, to continue quoting Cook, an audacity which does not shy away from failure, difficulty and depression, and that insists upon registering the minutiae of lived experience, the lows as well as the highs. And I'll ask Juliet what she thinks about that in a minute. The title of the book that we're discussing today, Variations, reflects the form, I think. There's a collection of short stories which come across variously. There's collections of letters unearthed in archives, an academic paper, a film scripts, a series of blog posts. The content, the history of trans and non-binary people in the United Kingdom, by my count from about 1846 to 2014 and into the present, includes sadness and often very political anger. But for me, anyway, it's a very funny book with a tone of celebration, a sense of solidarity and community across history, which emerges from the various repeating, unvarying situations the characters find themselves in, despite all the change around them. Uh, does that seem like a fair description, Julia? Did you it's a very generous description. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Quite a long one as well. Um, did you did you set out to book write a book which had that aspect of celebration? Is that a kind of that was the kind of the tone that came? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I I think I did. It was designed to be a book about community. I mean, you mentioned Trans Memoir, my previous book. Yeah. Um, and the way my old friend Jennifer Cook wrote about Trans Memoir with the kind of gentleness and humour, but also this expanded idea of trans and something that went beyond just to focus on myself as an individual. And so this book felt like a logical next step. You know, I didn't want to write something autobiographical at this point. I'd done that, had nothing more to say about my life. And I'd always felt quite ambivalent about writing about my own life anyway. It often felt like something I was doing out of sort of personal and political expediency. On a personal level, it felt like I wouldn't be allowed to write anything else until I'd done a memoir. And on a political level, it felt like what the British kind of media discourse and political discourse around trans needed was that sort of book that took the transsexual memoir as a genre and maybe attempted to expand it or even put a kind of full stop on it and say, well, look, OK, yes, look, this is the limits of what memoir can do. These are the uses of memoir. We should move on from here. And there was quite a striking review of Trans and Memoir by Kat Fitzpatrick, who used to run Topside Press, which was a trans publisher mm. in the US. And she pointed out the moments in Trans and Memoir that dealt with community more. And also the fact mm. that in Trans and Memoir, I write about my first attempt to write variations in the mid 2000s, mm. uh, which, which stalled for a number of reasons, which maybe we can go into later in the discussion. Mm. Um, but she said, I would much rather be reading these, these stories about trans communities. And indeed, that was really what I would rather have been writing. And yes, I mean, my own attitude to trans community is quite complicated. I have always struggled to find a trans quote unquote community that suits me. And indeed, Jules Gleason, who has just brought out this transgender Marxism volume that she's co-edited, talks more about trans circles than trans communities. And I think this book is more about trans circles. It's about the interactions that trans people have with the media, with the medical profession, with the law, uh, with mm. the industrial city, but 
really a lot of the time with each other like most of these stories do feature more than one trans person talking to each other and not always just about trans things so in that respect yes it is it's yeah. not so much a celebration maybe as a kind of act of defiance it's saying we're here and we've yeah. always been here and that's that's good and we're not going away yeah and i think also one of the things that the, also the, the extensive community within the many of the stories are about finding or not finding communities you say but there is in the sort of the grouping together of the stories kind of across the stories as well because you have these repeating experiences that happen to people again and again sort of across across the history you cover but before we i think that that's kind of getting i suppose that's something that emerges more as you get through the book so to kind of stay a bit earlier on um and just on that talking about the relationship to trans uh, a memoir at the beginning I think at one one says you, you thought about writing trans memoir as a novel, like a, a kind of the, the, that was a sort of um, a formal discussion you were having with yourself and and possibly your editor. Why did it make sense to you? Um, and I'm interested also that this was something you were thinking about before that variations would be short stories rather than say a, you know, a novel. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean. Just tap into the trans memoir thing. I liked the idea of writing it as a piece of autofiction. You know, this mm. idea that the central character would share my name. So it'd be doing something interesting mm. with that autobiographical pact. And it would obviously be a bit of a game for the reader to work out which experiences actually happened to me and which didn't. Mm. Uh, and I realised very quickly, I mean, that was really just a passing thought. I couldn't do that with trans memoir because the book would be taken as kind of representative of a trans community. I wasn't seeing it like that. And really, I wasn't allowed to see it like that. For me, it had to be purely representative only of myself. But I knew that mm. if I kind of blurred those lines in, in that way with material dealing with, I don't know, like transphobic institutional obstruction or social assault or something, that really wouldn't have been appropriate. So I had to, with trans memoir, I had to not just be truthful in the sort of poetic sense but also stick to the facts of my own life, which, mm. yeah, you know, I, I think I did something quite creative with it and I used quite kind of novelistic techniques in the way I kind of built the storyline and the dialogue and, you know, made it clear that a lot of the book was sort of constructed reality. There's no way I could remember all the details of specific conversations from like the early 2000s, for example. Mm. Um, so I brought some sort of literary techniques to bear in that book, but it is, it is memoir. It does stick to the kind of broad facts of my life. Sorry, I was going to say there's such an interesting um, kind of dialogue between that that relationship between the fictional and the and the events events of your life and the whole. I mean, maybe this is this is quite superficial, but in the whole idea of the quote unquote real life experience. Yeah, I mean, there's a real kind of narrativization of transition um, yeah. that comes with the medical process. You know, you, there's an opening. You have the feeling that you want to transition there's an inciting incident which is usually you like going to your doctor there's a set of risks that you take i.e going through the process with the gender identity clinic you know there's a climax which is surgery and there's a conclusion which is that you know how you feel about having gone through that process and that's the structure of of most mm. transsexual memoirs um i mean you could argue that the inciting incident is something that makes you realize you want to transition rather than the moment of going to your GP or something, in fact, it probably is, but that's the basic kind of structure. And so I was interested to sort of play with that with, with trans and memoir. But what I wanted to do, actually what I wanted to do before writing the memoir was a volume of short stories about trans people. And I also had this idea of doing like a kind of trans history of Britain. And indeed mm. did quite a lot of work on, on that. I wrote a sample chapter on the Victorian period, which of course ended up coming to bear in variations mm. because I realized that with writing a wider history, there was a bit of a problem, I think at this point with having just one person do that. Uh, I thought it, you know, an edited volume might be better. And indeed Christine Burns, the Press for Change activist brought out an edited volume called Trans Britain a few years ago, because I thought, you know, having, in my case, you know, a reasonably privileged, I mean, precarious, but, you know, middle-class, white, English, Southeastern, reasonably well-established with a media career, transsexual woman, do that history. I thought, I didn't really like the idea of that. And then there are all these questions about who qualifies as trans and who doesn't, and why should it be me making that decision? And also this kind of issue that I learned on my kind of history degree 
that this postmodern approach to history that says you can't transpose identities onto people who preceded them. Mm. And so with a pincer movement between that postmodern approach and just straightforward prejudice, we'd kind of been denied a history really, and it had been made as difficult mm. as possible for us to collate a history. And then I thought, well, what if you did it through fiction and then I can use, you know, literary techniques, kind of interior monologue in particular, kind of characterization but also even bringing to bear some of my own experiences on, on people from like the 19th century, then, then could really build a much more convincing and plausible trans history and bring a kind of trans perspective to wider queer histories. I think that's, a good, that's possibly a, a really good juncture to sort of dig into a, a reading from the book in which you kind of, I think you specifically talk where an example of you digging into that Victorian history and uh, it will give people a sense of, of something that lies in wait for them when they when they buy their own copy. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to read, I want to do a first reading. Um, this is quite early on in the second story, which is called A Woman of No Importance. Um, and this is set around the Oscar Wilde trial in 1895, which of course is 10 years after the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed, which made gross indecency between consenting adults, public or private, punishable by two years imprisonment with, with hard labour. And of course, that was famously what, what did for, for Wilde. So the narrator, and it's, it's not explicitly stated who the narrator is, you can kind of guess by by reading the story you can kind of hazard a guess as to the type of person he is if not put a name to him because most of the characters in this story are historically verifiable the protagonist is called Arthur Parr who is a writer and um, cross-dresser or comes to identify as an invert um, who moves from Manchester to London with the intention of beginning a writing career and is desperate to meet Oscar Wilde which he tries to do through the Yellow Book, which was this uh, fantasy Eckler publication. And um, so wants to write for The Yellow Book, but also wants to organise a drag ball. Thinks that being in an industrial city, he might be able to get away with doing this, find enough people to make it worthwhile and get away with doing it. So I'm going to read a few pages from A Woman of No Importance. Parr had already read everything that Wilde had published and was soon introduced to his idol via Aubrey Beardsley, who had illustrated Salome, rather than the editors of The Yellow Book, which Wilde had dismissed as dull and loathsome. Intrepid, Parr quizzed Oscar extensively about his work on their very first meeting over a meal in Soho that deserved a far larger audience. A shame, maybe, that Parr's questions didn't prepare Wilde for court, Parr was so pleased with himself for identifying what he said was a brilliant illusion in the importance of being earnest, then in its final rehearsals, to the trial of Ernest Stella Bolton and Frederick Fanny Park, cross-dressers who'd been arrested in London in 1870, under suspicion of being part of a cross-class sodomite ring. If Bolton is earnest, then he walks free. If she's Stella, then she goes to jail. Parr declared to the guests at a dinner near the Yellow Book offices on Vigo Street a few days later. That the dandyish Cecil Graham in Lady Windermere's fan took his name from the one that Bolton gave to the police on his arrest, said Parr, was proof that his theory was correct, although Oscar was too shrewd to offer anything so vulgar as clarification. Within a few weeks, Parr had met the Yellow Book's leading lights, and it seemed inevitable that he would appear within its pages. He had also met Edward Carpenter and Havelock Ellis, the sexologists, who showed him a passage in Richard von Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis about a woman with a morbid aversion to female attire who wanted nothing more than to live as her beloved's husband. Parr was excited by this and by a scurrilous novel by Viscount Ladywood about a young man forced into cross-sex servitude by a house of ladies, although I never heard him talk about women, just their clothing. When I read The Intermediate Sect by Edward Carpenter on its publication six years ago, there was one passage that immediately struck me as a perfect description of Parr, a distinctly effeminate type, sentimental, lackadaisical, mincing in gait and manners, something of a chatterbox, skillful at the needle and in women's work, sometimes taking pleasure in dressing in women's clothes, his figure not unfrequently betraying a tendency towards the feminine, while his dwelling room is orderly in the extreme, 
even Natty, and choice of decoration and perfume. His affection, too, is often feminine in character, clinging, dependent and jealous, as of one desiring to be loved almost more than to love. Parr spent as much time as he could with the two scientists, and naturally, he soon offered to help them with their research. There were many ways he could have done this, I am sure, but he was determined that the best was to find people to attend a men-only fancy dress ball to be held at a secret location in London, and along the way, introduce them to Carpenter and Ellis. Immediately, people tried to persuade Parr of the folly of this. He was convinced, though, that his party could evade the law, and that even should it fail, that the defences of the past would protect him in the present. At another Yellow Book dinner, attended by many of the journal's greatest poets and painters, authors and illustrators, the subject was the matter of considerable debate. In truth, most of the guests, particularly the publishers, Lane and Matthews, would have preferred not to discuss it at all, anxious about the possibility of word reaching the wrong ears. But Parr, as usual, would not be derailed. Bringing up the most famous legal precedent, Parr reminded everyone that Bolton and Park won their freedom by arguing that their female personas were extensions of their theatrical roles, while laughing at the very idea that a medical examination could prove anything. Then, he spoke at length about a ball held at the Temperance Hall in Hume, Manchester in September 1880. He said that he had known one of its participants. There had been 50 people there, Parr recited. They had made sure that nothing unnameable was visible, covering all windows that could be seen into from the street or neighbouring buildings, with entry only by password. They had even hired a blind organist to play the can-can. That didn't stop them getting raided, did it? said Ernest Dowson dismissively. Perhaps not, Pa replied, smiling. Although they put up a hell of a fight given their dress, I wouldn't be so complacent as to leave any window without blinds, no matter how hard it might be to peer through. Anyway, their lawyers said that to convict them for a vice so hateful that it could not be named amongst Christians would bring shame to all of Manchester. And of course, the court couldn't have that. They got off, asked Beardsley. £25 in fines and an order to be of good behaviour for a year. At this point, I wondered if Parr might be capable of such behaviour for a week, let alone a year. And given his lack of any discernible occupation, a £25 fine would be ruinous. And their names in all the papers, added Matthews. What happened to your friend after he handed over his money? Parr fell silent. Did he just become some ne'er-do-well? He moved from Salford to Fallowfield, said Parr. He worked under an assumed name, but seemed happy enough to me. Anyway, one is always allowed more freedom if one is a great artist. You didn't hear about Luke Limner then, said John Lane. They found him on the highway and made him stand in the dock in a ridiculous hat and high heels. He said that he was an artist, working on a book on female attire, and needed personal experience to treat the subject properly. They still find him five pounds. Perhaps they find him for making such terrible work, Pa retorted, his face dropping as he saw nobody else was laughing. Besides, five pounds is nothing, he insisted. We can cover that. We? asked Lane. What about Edward Hamblar? interjected Walter Sickert, breaking Pa's silence. The police caught him in Bromley Street dressed as a woman. The crowd were going to tear him to pieces. They thought he was the Ripper. He was lucky to escape with a £10 fine. Whoever Jack was, it's over now, replied Parr. And both of your subjects made the mistake of going out in public. I would keep things behind closed doors. Things have changed, replied Sickert. That's no longer sufficient. Before Parr could answer, in walked Matt's Beerbum. He broke the news that the Marquess of Queensbury, furious about Wilde's relationship with his son Alfred Douglas, or Bosey, had been barred from the opening night of the importance of being earnest. Undeterred, he had sought out Wilde at the Albemarle Club. After being refused entry, he'd left a card for Oscar Wilde posing Somdermite. We did not yet know what would arise, but shortly afterwards, Wilde had consulted a solicitor and Queensbury was arrested for criminal libel.
Thanks very much. This is possibly a bit of a swerve, but one of the things that particularly in that section, the mention of uh, Kraft Abing, uh, while I was re reading, uh, not long after the book turned up and I was reading it, and by the way, you can't read, I think this is audio rather than video, we can say it's a lovely, it's a lovely object. It's a, it's a very nice cover, well done cover design. Um, <laughs> I noticed that you had, um, that Fitzcarraldo books are publishing Paul B. Preciado's uh, Can the Monster Speak, which I mentioned Preciado at the beginning, uh, with a quotation on the jacket which, uh, from you, uh, which I thought might be kind of useful to quote or interesting to quote here, because especially with the Craft Aben uh, mention and one of the sort of strands of the book, which is about the kind of um, development of the various sort of scientific theories which are sort of around at the time and how they change during the course of the book. Um, and you say in the quotation that Fitzgeraldo used on, on the, the dust jacket, Drawing on decades of radical trans theory, Preciado presents not just a searing critique of the psychoanalytic establishment, but also a bold challenge to it, calling for a paradigm shift that will have an impact way beyond its intended field. Can the monster speak demands its audience to think politically, granting new power to previously marginalized voices. And this is a show about your book, not Preciado, so I don't want to go entirely over to that, but it struck me as very much in sympathy with yours and some of the context into which, it's going to be some of the context into which yours is published. Um, maybe it would be useful. Do you want to explain to, to listeners a bit about um, the Preciado book, just the context of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I Preciado's probably... Can the Monster Speak comes from a speech that Preciado gave to a group of psychoanalysts, basically just taking umbrage with the way they were positioning trans people as, you know, kind of objects of interest and not so much people with subjectivity. As you know, as I say there, it does draw on decades of, of radical trans theory and in particular the works of Susan Stryker who famously wrote this um, essay in the, the mid-90s sort of invoking the figure of Frankenstein's monster as a kind of analogous figure to the trans people of of the time and you know the way in which trans upset a lot of um, established categories and caused certain medical and psychoanalytical establishments an awful lot of trouble that they were never really able to satisfactorily resolve. I mean, I think to bring that discussion back here, you know, that, that second story, the reason why I chose that extract is because it brings in the way in which the book engages with not just the history of legal suppression, but of course, you know, that extract ends quite ominously with the writers and artists associated with the Yellow Book explaining to Arthur Parr that the Criminal Law Amendment Act means that there is a, a really kind of deliberately very broad range of things that you can be arrested for as a kind of sexual offence. And that's been deliberately made very, very broad, partly in response to the Bolton and Park trial, which collapsed because the authorities didn't really have anything satisfactory to try them for. The only thing that was legal was sodomy. Um, and it was sodomy, is it? <laughs> well, as, as, uh, as the Marcus of Queensbury has it, yeah. Um, but, but Bolton and Park were taken for this medical examination by the Metropolitan Police in 1870. And of course, that proved inconclusive, as Parr is kind of laughing about in the text there. Um, and in fact, the police were rebuked in the trial. A Victorian judge thought, that the Metropolitan Police had gone so far that he rebuked them for being too cruel to like the queers, which is pretty astonishing, really. Uh, but then in the summing up, the judge said, basically says, look, Bolton and Park, we really want to do you for this, but we've checked the rule book and we haven't got anything, so we're going to have to let you go. And then it's one of the reasons why you get this broader legislation. But of course, it doesn't just bring that in. It brings in kind of literary and artistic culture as somewhere where traditionally queer and trans people could express themselves a bit more freely and feel a bit safer. Although a lot of this story pivots on the fact that even for the Yellow Book, like Parr is going far too far. And in the context of the wild trial, it's particularly dangerous for him not just to be living the way he's living, but writing the things that he writes. But it brings in that literary and artistic culture and also that sexological culture, the very early sexology that arises partly in response to the Criminal Law Amendment Act that people like Edward Carpenter and Havelock Ellis are involved with trying to build a better understanding of queer people. And, and, you know, this is before gay and lesbian and trans identities have been really delineated. So trying to build a better understanding in the hope of creating a fairer law and a, a more just 
society and all of those things were at play in the extract I've just read. Yeah, the, the kind of the, the, the way that they, the, the reason I mentioned the Preciado is kind of the way that, that those two sort of strands, well, the various strands sort of like overlap really, that the, the, you see in sort of snapshots through the stories, the various sort of the, the point at which, so in you know, much later on the stories, there's a point at which like you, we learn about um, section 28 or kind of like that's particularly going on at that moment. And there's a sort of timeline which is snapshotted in that kind of way. And I, I suppose the, the reason that I was kind of interested in, in mentioning the, the, the Preciado thing was, was as a thinking about the, the context in which, because these all of the stories are looking at the context of that particular historical moment. And that was a, a kind of active, I suppose, a kind of archival recovery. And that's kind of one of the, I suppose, I have to put this, that's one of the, uh, the recurring framing devices that you use formally, like, you know, you'll have like I said in, in, in introduction, like you know, we'll be we'll get a note at the head of the, sto- the story saying this is a you know this was discovered in a in an archive as part of this particular project, and that feels like quite an that feels like quite a really important. It's not it's a framing device, but it's a very important one to the structure of the book and, and its relationship to history because it 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 feels to, to me that it it's pointing out the marginalisation of these histories and the is that a fair description of it and also. Yeah, well, let's go with that first. Yeah, I mean, the book is presenting a kind of imaginary archive. And yes, you know, as you point out, nearly every story, I think the last one, the 2014 one, isn't. I think all the others have some sort of explanatory note at the beginning. And they're at the beginning of all of them. We made an editorial decision to put them all at the start rather than some of them at the end. Mm. Explaining where the the story was, was found uh, and any other contextual detail that we thought might be useful so for example the one from a woman of no importance says that this is a pamphlet and it was subtitled recollections of a par uh, and says that it's been found in an archive at university college london it tells you that the author has not been identified and that we can guess that it wasn't any of the writers or artists referenced within but it's not confirmed whether it was written by contributors to the yellow book but it does say look it was dated 1914 and the person writing the note speculates about why it was written at this point perhaps the author felt that the first world war would mean a relaxation of the criminal law amendment act or at least that people were paying less attention but we don't know if the pamphlet was ever published because of laws around obscenity and publication and that you know we don't have much proof that Arthur Parr existed but that there is an Arthur Parr in the 1881 census that probably fits the bill and it doesn't tell you there who has written the, the note, actually. In some cases it does. But basically the book is, is this kind of imagined archive with, with notes, like you say, to, to retrieve these marginal histories. And often, yes, in the note, it makes some mention of the marginality. I mean, one of the stories, one of my favourite stories, is called Dancing with the Devil. Uh, and that's set in the 1950s. It's an imagined chapter from a, a transsexual woman's memoir that... Yeah mirrors the sort of memoirs written by like early transsexual women in Britain, like Roberta Cowell and April Ashley and Caroline Cossey. And that note in- concludes after the events outlined below, Laura Miller, the protagonist withdrew from public life. Little has been heard from her since she published his memoir in 1970. So even in those acts of kind of reclamation in these introductory passages, there's still a highlighting of, of these processes of marginalization that are then explicated in in the stories yeah that that was i got particularly with that story i got a real sense of i know this is possibly this is possibly the point at which my own imagination was going but i got i could really imagine you immersing yourself in the the sort of the culture of that of that of that era i sort of imagined you kind of listening to all of its music and yeah i'd like to know more about how you did sort of what in the process of writing how you did sort of bring those moments alive for yourself yeah that's which I suppose isn't just like the bringing kind of the mainstream culture alive for yourself, like everything about like the different aspects of your, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every single historical period that I write about in this book is a period that I find fascinating. I mean, they're all Mm. set in Britain, all the stories. I mean, there's one set in Wales, set in Cardiff and London. The final one is set in Belfast. There's not one set in Scotland. I'm actually hoping to write an additional story set in 2020 or 21, set in Scotland, um, but there's not currently a Scottish story. 
but they're mostly set around different parts of England. So Norwich, Brighton, Blackpool, Liverpool, Manchester, as well as several in London. And they're all histories that really, really interest me. And yes, I mean, obviously this book is a history of trans people in Britain from the 1840s to the present, but it's also a history of Britain more generally. So things come in like kind of the politics around legislation, around gender and sexuality, but also just the politics more generally. You know, obviously the the First and Second World War do impinge on the text a bit, although not that much. Things like, obviously, pop music comes in a lot in the sort of later 20th century stories. Television becomes important. The rise of the internet and people's changing relationships to the internet. All of these things come in. And yes, I mean, it was sort of necessary to immerse myself in certain often kind of countercultures for each of these stories. So for a woman of no importance, I've talked about that a lot. Obviously read quite a lot about late Victorian sexuality, but also read a lot of literature from the time. So I, I read the Yellow Book anthology. Uh, mm. I reread quite a lot of Wild. I read Aubrey Beardsley's novel Under the Hill, which was not published at the time, I think published later, you know, and I had previously read quite a lot of like French and English fantasy eclair literature. For example, the 1970s story, which is set in in Norwich and London, I bring in a lot of kind of punk and post-punk subculture, which is something I've loved since I was a teenager, you know, also touches on the kind of glam subculture at the time, which is a way that the protagonist sort of found some of her gender identity more through that. The story pivots around the central character going to a Jane County gig, uh, the transsexual punk singer, and also to the alternative Miss World kind of events that were held in London in the 70s. Uh, But it also kind of brings in television programmes. The BBC did a couple of quite interesting and influential TV programmes about trans women in the late 70s, and even brings in things like kind of Joy Division and post-punk stuff that is just, you know, it's not really a trans subculture, of course, but just something that I've always loved. Uh, And even, you know, in that story, the Norwich story in the 70s, there are even passing references to like a, a riot at Carrow Road uh, in a game between Norwich City and Manchester United, which of course draws on the fact that I am uh, a long-term supporter of Norwich City Football Club for some reason. Um, so, so it wasn't difficult I didn't... to immerse, immerse myself in this stuff because I've been living it my whole life, really. I know, I know Sweet 212 often comes with a sort of a, a reading list. There'll be a sort of, <laughs> a, such an enormous reading list for, for this book. And I just sort of, I'm just interested to dig into little bits of it. The, the, so for, you know, to, to bring alive the alternative in this world, what did you, what were the sources? Um, well, firstly, there was a documentary made about that particular year's alternative in this world. I can't remember what it's called now. It might be called I Want to Be a Movie Star, but the name um, off the top of my head escapes me. Um, Mm. But there is a documentary about it. I was able to watch an hour's worth of footage from it. When you're doing something like that, do you sort of pick out, you know, do you pick out people from the crowd and think, oh, that's, you know, I might make one of my, that that sort of, one of my characters might look like that or a little you know, bit like yeah kind of make extensive notes you know what watch it and and write everything down and yeah have some idea of who my characters might be i mean in the alternative miss world story it's called standards of care it's the seventh story i think the whole point is that the central character gets kind of drawn into these subcultures and is seen as a bit of a nerd and you know the people she meets are cooler than her really and uh, you know at times really kind to her and other times really kind of callous and cruel Mm. towards her which is you know a kind of dynamic that I think lots of us will be familiar with from from somewhere or another so the whole point with Mm. with Sandy in um in standards of care is that she kind of she she goes to this alternative Miss World thing with a kind of David Bowie kind of lightning sash down her face and lots of people like Bowie that's you know five years ago what are you doing so uh, yeah, it was more. It's more just trying to get the overall kind of ethos and atmosphere of an event like that. I think, but I mean, it also draws from things I've been to, like the old tranny shack clubs in in London in the late two thousand. Some of the kind of bar whatever stuff. This kind of yeah. you know trans subculture in the two thousands that I wasn't that present at, but probably enough to use a mixture of personal experience and kind of archive footage and writing to I hope bring some life to an event like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how much of it um, returns to to music. Like there's, there's um, 
uh, and the venues that music happens in. Um, I think on, on that that note, there's um, sort of bringing alive another another sort of musical place and time. I think there's, there's another another reading you, you could maybe do. Yeah, I think this will be a, a nice one uh, as a kind of interesting contrast to the reading from War of No Importance, because whereas that story is dealing with this quite, you know, highbrow kind of proto-modernist decadent literary culture um this story although is it's very... interesting the, sorry to go across you though it's interesting that it seems that do you think that's partly the effect of the effect of time and the canon and, and history like we think of that as you know, highbrow now because of the distance but like there are all sorts of you know there are obviously all sorts of you know kind of quote-unquote lowbrow aspects to it well, too. quite and i mean indeed in in the story arthur parr gets angry because his writing is characterized as pornography basically and mm. you know references some kind of underground and quite surreptitious Victorian pornography. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think you're probably right. Although, and you know, Oscar Wilde, of course, was seen as like light entertainment, I think. Or, and you know, okay. maybe maybe people weren't as conscious of those. Again, that kind of high culture, pop culture binary was really only just emerging at that time, I think. I don't think that concept's really concretized until, until the interwar period, I think. So yeah, that's that's an interesting kind of observation. But anyway, you know, this um this this next story I'm going to read from is the sixth story. It's set in 1967, just after the decriminalization of homosexuality in, in England and Wales. Uh, and it's set in a drag bar in Liverpool called the White Swan. Um, and it narrated by someone called Kevin or Mary, who was a drag queen who performed at this bar and elsewhere in in Northern England. And the story is written up as like a long a long article for a publication called The Gay Chronicle, which is looking back at 30 years later at The White Swan. And so it's been set up that the pub didn't last that long, um, but it started putting on started putting on these drag shows pretty much as soon as the decriminalisation happened, and that there were three important artists there, a transsexual woman called Davina and a Jamaican immigrant called uh, Ladonia. So I'm going to pick up the story again quite early on where Kevin Stroke Mary has been to the bar with his sister and his sister has said, look, you used to like dressing up as a girl when you were younger. Maybe you should give this a try. Uh, Kevin's sister talks him into it. So I'm going to pick up the story there. Despite the decriminalisation, however, public attitudes often remain far from supportive of homosexuality or anything associated with it. And many people still struggle to be open, even with their friends, families and lovers, let alone wider society. Kevin Stroke Mary was no exception. Samantha, my missus, really wasn't happy, recalls Kevin Stroke Mary. She told me she didn't want to see it. She didn't want me to get changed at home or the kids to find out about it. I spent the whole night convincing her that I still loved her, that I was straight and that it would just be for a gig. Then she asked if I'd ever worn her clothes. Don't be silly, I told her. You're about a foot shorter than me and half my bloody weight. But you would if you could, she said. I just smiled, said I was all man and went to kiss her. I think if she'd pushed it any further, I'd have given up on it. But she just said, if it makes you happy, and then went to sleep. That Friday evening, straight after work, I went to Tanya's to grab her clothes. Then we went to the pub. I got changed in the cellar, then she did my makeup in the ladies. It was all very glam. The thing I was most nervous about was prancing around on that little stage in high heels. I hadn't had much practice, just a couple of rehearsals with my sister on the Sunday. But I was doing it. Pam got up and said, we've got something very special for you all tonight. A new girl. And there was all this hooting and hollering as I walked down the stairs from the box. And Pam turned around and said, shit, what's your name, Pep? I'd bloody forgotten to come up with anything. So, Pam yelled, she hasn't even got a bloody name. What should we call her? Some wag cried, Mary. And Pam asked, Mary what? The bloke suggested, White House. And Pam said, no, that's taken, you dozy sod. Another chap yelled, shite house. And Pam just went, all right, Mary Lighthouse. Just as I realised I had my new identity, I saw Davina at the bar with the gin and tonic shooting daggers at me. But even more than the boozers laughing, her glare just spurred me on. They put the record on. I was so nervous, I forgot the vocals came in straight away. 
I also forgot I was supposed to be lip syncing and kind of bellowed the first line and people started jeering. I wasn't a professional yet, but I knew I had to ignore them and get on with it. I tried to take my mind off that fuck up by staring at the chandelier. It was massive. I think they got it from the theater. Then I spotted Tanya laughing with her mate from work and realized I had to deliver the song to the people in the room. First, I went up to this Quentin Crisp type in a suit and pink shirt with big eyelashes and mind the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. He winked at me and said, I hope so, sweetheart, to raucous laughter. I just licked my lips and grinned. I'd forgotten how much those old queens loved Judy. I'd always thought of her as someone my sister liked, but I was really getting into it. I could see Davina had unfolded her arms, and even if she didn't actually smile, she'd raised her eyebrows. She always had them done up perfectly. I can still see those little arches even now. I got to the chorus, looking up at the lights as I mimed, someday I'll wish upon a star. Then as I approached the end, gave my hand to some old boy. I gazed into his eyes and mouthed birds fly over the rainbow, then turned back to the audience and held out my hands for the big ending. Why then? Oh, why can't I? Everyone started whooping and hollering as Pam came back. Encore, cried some old soak. I haven't got any more, I replied. I didn't want any more songs, he yelled. Well, you're not getting anything else, darling, I told him to uproar from the crowd. Who thinks Mary should learn a few more numbers and come back next week, asked Pam. There was riotous applause. Despite Pam's dismissive, off you fuck then, I knew I was in. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Did that, because that also part of the story in that one is the worries the characters have when, um, well, some of them do and some of them don't, when a TV show is going to be made by Granada about it. And uh, it's this kind of nice sort of reversal thing, uh, this sort of lens um, reversal thing where you suddenly think, actually, that must have been where you, I assume that was, did you did come across that culture through the seeing the, the TV show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a key source for this text was, um, I think, Granada documentary, I think maybe in Manchester in the late 60s, early 70s, that's on the BFI's LGBT archive. And I think it's called something, again, I've forgotten the title, I think it's called something like, What's a Girl Like You? Dot, dot, dot. And yeah, you know, I sort of picked up something of the tone of the documentary, the narrator's attitude to the characters is sort of attempts to be sympathetic and a level of, if not contempt, then kind of confusion and disapproval that sort of seeps through the voiceover at points, problems with with the way the documentary is framed, but nonetheless it being sympathetic. And, you know, I bring that out in the description of the documentary in the article that forms that story. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Mm. You know, there is there is very much a case of, of writing back from the documentaries that I've watched. But again, there is there is something here, you know, I came to as a trans and queer scene just in time to catch the very end of that kind of culture because it persisted Mm. even into the early 2000s you could see these types of old drag shows uh in Mm. brighton in particular i tended to see them a little bit in manchester when i was living there um Mm. and indeed that comes into um the 1980s story never going underground which is set in manchester but yeah, there was there was a case of writing writing back a bit from from those documentaries. Yeah, I suppose with the also because I think you yeah because you have this night it sets up quite nicely because you have the they make the characters talk about the making you know the the, the camera crew coming to make the make the the TV film and the Kevin slash Mary is sort of worried about um, you know being seen on telly by his his colleagues and but goes with it anyway but that kind of and, and then then they watch the documentary and they get their sort of um their critique of the of the of the tv show and that kind of um that aspect of i suppose the that is obviously kind of like one of your concerns in, in the book the representation of, tra- of trans lives in in the media and uh i suppose that's also yeah that was what clearly one of the concerns of, of trans and memoir as well and like it's one of the sort of the, the threads that runs through it and, and i think that that really comes to a fore in a really interestingly complex way in the one that's based around a uh, a film script mm. it, it's almost it gets kind of quite mise on a beamy really right? maybe i don't know rather than me paraphrasing it do you want to explain that the, the premise quickly for the, for the yeah for the, the 
that's one of my my favorite stories it's one of the later ones in the book it's set in the 1990s and the stories are ordered chronologically and it's dealing with the fact that there are a lot of relatively mainstream films about trans people in the 90s in Britain and in the Angersphere uh, mm. so you had like the crying game where the, the title the twist is drawn from the way the crying game was marketed the sort of character's gender being the twist uh mm. you had things like different for girls boys don't cry priscilla queen of the desert to wong fu thanks for everything julie newmar the belgian film uh, ma vie en rose uh, i'm sure there's plenty i've forgotten but there's a real kind of influx of of trans related films <laughs> uh no pun intended well, my, my dear friends at Influx That's Press. That's the name um, of the publisher, everyone. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. And um, <laughs> yeah, there's, 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 there's a real a, a glut of, um, of trans, trans-themed films in, in the 90s that I grew up with. So again, these things are very close to my heart and I really had kind of been living them for quite a long time. And I think I had the idea for the twist earlier than any of the other stories actually mm. precedes the period of the writing by several years, which is this idea for a film about the making of a film about a trans woman in the 90s. And so in the twist, it's it's written as a film script by one of the people in the narrative mm. called Zelda. And the premise is that a sort of quite arrogant, auteurish filmmaker of sort of English pastoral films has chanced upon this quite trashy trans memoir uh, by a writer called Juliana Starr, who claims to have slept with lots of Tory MPs in the 80s and so forth. And probably, you know, the director thinks that not everything in this memoir is probably true, but it will make an interesting movie. Juliana Starr has, has died, so there's not really much concern about the kind of rights in any way. You know, you can't copyright a knife. So he's making something kind of loosely based on this memoir. And Zelda was Juliana's lover. And hears that this film is in production and sort of makes her way onto the set and starts talking to the people in the film like the lead actress who's going to play the cis woman actress who's going to play this trans woman and says look you know actually we can make a better film by being more truthful and that includes being honest about the reasons why Zelda and I why um, Juliana and I wrote this memoir for kind of the wrong reasons really as a kind of failed attempt to play the market and so there's all these complexities that come out of that and yeah, I mean, you know, the story is called The Twist because it sort of takes this idea, like I said, of Dill's gender in the crying game being used as, as a twist uh, mm. and sort of takes it to this sort of quite absurd, I hope quite comical place where the story is just full of all these kind of increasingly ridiculous twists. And, you know, the uh, Zelda takes a real kind of delight in constantly kind of twisting the narrative. And then there's another twist with her writing the story about it and at the beginning yeah. of the the script again you've got a note saying the script was written in 2015 so 20 years after the events it depicts and there's also the the the, the sort of auteurish filmmaker doesn't have entirely sort of a he's he's certainly not motivated by any sort of um, desire to kind of to tell trans stories honestly um, no he's not he's a bit of a hack in a way but also you know, he he really thinks that he can tell a really kind of worthy story. And I think he does think like making a film about a trans woman is the fast track to like an Academy Award of some sort. I'm not sure if also another one of the twists is that I'm not sure I'll leave this over to you, whether or not you want to reveal this twist in the uh, <laughs> before people read it the film he ends up making is also a bit of a twist. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I won't. Right, which so will be which will also be a, a twist that I, I believe will appeal to listeners long-term <laughs> listeners of sweet two one two yes quite um, <laughs> um but also there's kind of i mean in terms of like the uh, another aspect i mean as a standalone story it has lots of sort of looping sort of formal self-referential sort of aspects but I felt also that it, it really sort of loops back to the the kind of the Wildean sort of beginnings of the collection because it's it's got that kind of which itself like that aspect of that slightly kind of musically kind of farcy sort of Shakespearean atmosphere. 
Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that. I sort of think of the twist more in line with uh, Dancing with the Devil as, as a story. You know, they're, they're the two stories that engage the most concretely with trans memoir. Yeah. And Dancing with the Devil sort of looks at the positives of trans memoir as it being, it's quite an affectionate take on trans memoir as being a site through which, a genre through which trans people could actually tell their stories and get a fair hearing in the face of a sensationalistic press. And of course, mm. that story is about Laura Miller dealing with prurient press who just want to destroy her life really just because they can. And then obviously the twist is incredibly cynical take on, on trans memoir and is very much about how it's sort of shaped by the demands of the market and the um, sort of socioeconomic forces that might encourage you to just write something yeah, dishonestly. I mean, I one of the, the really interesting things about um, choosing the and maybe that's probably a question in itself really how when you realized you'd found as you're kind of going through the various uh decades the stories um are, are based around what made you feel like you'd found the right sort of form for that story like why was you know why was a, a film script i suppose actually you've kind of answered why a, in the 90s a film script felt like the thing that would do that but why yeah. was yeah what how did you go through that process and what yeah that's that's a like? really interesting question i mean really because it was always my precept that all of the stories would have a different form and actually there are one or two forms that are uh, overlapping but i tried to make the form appropriate to the time so for example the first story the 1846 story a night at the theater is written as a diary because there's no way the author could publish anything on their own drive to cross dress from male to female because to say anything other than I'm doing this for a laugh um, and even then only when asked would be disastrous would result in probably imprisonment if not mm. sort of social ostracization uh, would be a really bad thing to do the 1920s story is an academic paper looking back on early sexology as a way of kind of collating archive papers around sexology so that's you know a collection of letters and case notes and transcripts mm. um, but that felt like appropriate to that period um, the 1950s story is a chapter from a memoir because like I said earlier that was a time when a lot of trans memoirs were starting to emerge so that felt appropriate the 90s story is a film script because like I said there were a lot of films dealing with trans subjects in the 90s the 2000 story is an oral history dealing with this like radical queer collective in Brighton that collapses under the weight of its own unexamined, particularly racial prejudices and, and racism. And then the, 2000, the 2010 story is a set of blog posts that sort of interact with Twitter and social media, although I don't do the, I think, quite cringy thing of trying to recreate Twitter, just the character sort of alludes to it. And I, I thought about including comments on the blog posts as well and decided not to. But, you know, a set of blog posts and even, you know, by 2014, kind of keeping your own blog is a bit passe, actually, uh, although the character is aware of that, and does sort of allude to that in that yeah. story as, as well. But try to make the form sort of appropriate to the ways that trans people were able or not able to express themselves at different times. I mean, the 1930s story is largely a set of like letters and newspaper articles. And that sort of reflects the fact that that's really the point at which the first coverage of trans people really starts to emerge with like the first female to male transsexual people in, in the sort of mid to late thirties. Do you know, I'm interested when you're saying that it's going to, cause I, I was thinking about the fact that, um, so tipping point, the, the last story is, is based around that famous transgender. Well, it's not really based around it, but that's one of the events in the, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was, did you think I need to write about transgender tipping point uh, and this is the the blog format you know, this yeah this is a kind of landmark and a blog format is perhaps the way of doing it because it was such an internet sort of yeah absolutely phenomenon. i mean that that transgender tipping point article that time magazine published in i think may 2014 with laverne cox from orange is the new black on the cover uh was seen as this you know kind of landmark moment in sort of certain liberal type of trans media representation and the argument in the article is that the trans rights movement, particularly in North America, particularly the US, had reached a point where it just couldn't be stopped. Like trans visibility and trans organization was such that, you know, under a sort of Whig model of history, 
that freedom had like unfolded to a point where it couldn't be rolled back. And of course, mm. what we've seen happen since then is a pretty staggering global assault on trans visibility and trans rights. You know, obviously, like the Trump administration, basically, to borrow a phrase from the transphobic feminist Janice Raymond, tried to mandate transgender out of existence in Brazil, like Bolsonaro was elected promising to kind of crush the LGBT community more generally, but like Judith Butler became a real hate figure in Bolsonaro's Brazil. In Romania, like I think gender studies courses are outlawed at universities, same thing happened in Hungary that then retroactively annulled people's gender recognition that had been passed years earlier. Uh, In Britain, of course, you had like Liz Truss shelving reforms to the Gender Recognition Act and threatening to introduce legislation to make like gender neutral bathrooms illegal and kind of regulate who could use which single sex bathroom and so forth so you've actually seen this like wave of global reaction which obviously in the British press has been incredibly intense and so this story tipping point was actually written in like autumn 2017 Um, Mm. and I think if I'd written it even a year later when the um, stuff around the gender recognition act reforms was at its peak it might have looked more different still in fact I did redraft it a bit later Mm. on but it does it does pick up the fact that it was very visible in 2014 um, which, of course, is when I was writing for the New Statesman, and indeed when I quit writing for the New Statesman because they were publishing so many quote-unquote gender-critical op-eds mm. uh, that I just felt I couldn't have a home at that publication. It was untenable for me to write for them. You know, what Edward in Tipping Point, the protagonist, is charting through his blogs is that backlash and how it's going to work and the, how exhausting it, it is and how hard it mm. is to be on the front line against that. I, I'm sorry, sorry to keep going back to it because I, I just I, I read it along alongside your your book, um, sort of fairly coincidentally. But um, the Preciado um, kind of wants to speak. But there's, there's a line um, sort of towards the end uh, where he says a, a paradigm shift comparable to that wrought in the early 20th century by quantum mechanics and a series of relativity is now taking place in the techniques of procreating life and the collective production of se- sexual and gender sub- subjectivity. Yeah, I kind of was thinking about like if you, your the context in which because that story ends in 2014. You said you were you thought about revising it and didn't. I suppose you've you've already sort of said a bit about the context into which the book is. You know, you're publishing the book, like you know we've talked loads about the context in which each of the sort of fictional writers uh, in their moments have uh, have you know sort of written theirs, and I kind of wonder. Maybe the, the best way of, of asking this is, is thinking about, you know, if and when you write this, um, the Scottish story, you know, what that is set sort of now, I suppose, would, would it be? Yeah. Like what would, yeah, what would, what would the form of it be? I think it's probably going to be a transcript of a podcast. Ah. because podcasts are everywhere now yeah (laughs) um i mean obviously again it would draw on experience of you know a form that i've used i mean you know one of one of the things about this collection as a whole is you know i have extensively written diaries journalism short form and long form journalism short stories because you know never going underground is actually it's kind of presented as like a found short story i've written screenplays so you know the collection as a whole i've written a memoir obviously um Mm. the collection as a whole does draw on forms of writing that i've used quite a lot um and so this this story set in 2020 or 2021 uh, which is probably going to be from the perspective of like a mother of a trans child because actually the discourse around trans children over the last 10 years or so in particular the last few years has been really horrendous it will take the form of a, a podcast i think but i haven't done that much work on it yet so i'm not quite sure no. exactly what it's going to look like talking about forms it's what's something we haven't really sort of mentioned yet is we've talked about literary forms mainly and it's sort of <laughs> up for debate i suppose whether or not our podcast is a literary form um i suppose it certainly partakes of literary aspects um sometimes but another aspect of your practice is possibly reflected in the film script piece because you, you are a filmmaker as well and i was kind of i suppose and also film is one of your sub- source materials so did you did you think <laughs> did, why did this need to be a book rather than a film do you think um i mean you can definitely imagine it as like a tv series of some sort and i'd be quite happy for that to happen i mean i think i wanted to write it as a book I mean, partly because of the resources available to me, you know, I mean, 
I'd had this idea for this set of short stories actually since I was about 20 years old. So long before I, I learned filmmaking, I didn't really learn filmmaking until my mid thirties. Mm. So I'd always wanted this to be a book. I'd always wanted it to be, you know, a text that could be transmissible. It felt to me politically useful for it to be literature. And it's partly because of, you know, there are quite a lot of films with trans characters, even if they're not made by trans people, there's very little trans literature really it's very little literature in which trans people were the main characters and mm. even less that have been written by trans people that's actually about the material lives of, of trans and non-binary people you know a lot of mm. um the novels that i had read in my 20s that did have sort of trans main characters were sort of using them to make some wider point about gender or society so you think of things like Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge or Jean Genet's Our Lady of the Flowers or Severo Sardoy's Cobra. Uh, a lot of these books are quite marginal. They're not necessarily very well known. Um, they're mostly written by gay men rather than trans women or trans people more generally. And yeah, they're often using the sort of trans figure as some sort of textual experiment or, or some sort of social commentary. I love literature. I did a master's in literature and visual culture, obviously just done a creative critical writing PhD. I read a lot of novels, always have done, always been very interested in literary history and just never really saw myself or trans people reflected in it. So really for me, it was to try and create a sort of British trans literary discourse. I mean, it's interesting mm. because in the last decade, fiction has become, I think a lot of people have had the same idea at the same time. Um, a lot of people had the same idea at the same time with the media here in the late 2000s. I think a lot of trans people, me included, thought, OK, the media is doing us real damage and we need to mm. address it. And a lot of us have tried to address the media and come out of that being like, OK, actually, we need a bigger and more solid bulwark against transphobia, whether it's coming from, quote unquote, radical feminists or from just more old fashioned conservatives. We need to be writing books and we need to be really trying to sort of shift the conversation. And I thought that fiction could be a great way of like building empathy with audiences of saying to trans writers look you don't have to just answer directly to the terms set by people who hate us you can respond to that by doing something more artful and hopefully more kind of beautiful and it felt to be really important to do that through through literature and it's interesting that a lot of my my influences yes, we're sort of trans theorists from the 90s and 2000s, but we're also just like fairly underground British writers. I mean, I'm particularly inspired by fairly marginal at the time and all of them subject to some level of recuperation more recently, including in my own work. But people like B.S. Johnson, Anne Quinn, Rainer Heppenstall, quite formally experimental 1960s and 70s, novelists really sort of you know writing what I called like neo-modernism attempts to revive modernism and find new directions for it and in my case trying to find a trans direction for that type of writing. Variations as a title strike it sort of it seems intrinsically modernist in, in, in sort of ways that I, I can and can't put a finger on. And the cover as well I mean the cover I mean we can't see the cover here but it's this you know quite minimal mixture of sort of sky blue and pink halves taken from the trans flag uh, with a black and white circle in the middle and, and sans serif fonts in black and white that has a sort of retro modernism to it as well. I mean, it really sort of looks like an updated version of sort of Pelican book covers from the sort of 50s and 60s. Mm. So yeah, I mean, there is, there is a kind of literary sort of neo-modernism, I think, running, running through this mm. book, maybe a kind of retro modernism. But again, you know, I mean, really... I think Trans and Memoir was the kind of book I would have wanted when I was 15 or 16 years old. And Variations is the kind of book I would have wanted when I was 20 or 21 years old, which is indeed when I conceived it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it does beg the question, sort of like within the sort of the one of the classic modernist career paths, like are you, is, is an epic novel next? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, I think this will be my last, the last book I write about trans issues. I mean, I think I've said that before, but this time I really mean it. Uh, I mean, there will be an anthology of my trans writing at some point. And that's kind of in the pipeline, which will have a new introduction talking about kind of the 2010s and that being my time of doing this.
But in terms of what comes next, I'm not really sure at the moment. I mean, I, I have been working on a, um, a screenplay about an early 20th century British politician. So there's a kind of continuation of, of that sort of engagement with the 20th century and late 19th right. and early 20th century historical period, which just really fascinates me, always has done. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the next project is really apart from that is is going to take some time to emerge and that's okay actually I really wouldn't want to be one of these authors who just puts out a new novel every year and I'd rather actually just take some time to think about what the right project is to do next and you know whatever it is it will likely require quite a level of historical research it may well be another historical novel or a historical piece of literature but we'll see. Is that, is that's probably a, a good point to, to end on as we look expectantly to the future to <laughs> look forward to redoing this when uh, when when said novel or, or whatever the work is well yeah and i look forward to having you uh, back on suite 212 when your biography of john berger comes out <laughs> uh, i i look forward to coming back thanks very much juliet when's the book out uh, so the book is published on the 17th of June by Influx Press and it will be available from influxpress.com as well as all good bookshops. Hey. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Great to speak to you again. You too. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.